Hello, everyone. You are listening to the, and maybe watching the, Communication Solution uh, podcast here with our team. And our whole intention here is to help you improve the outcomes with the individuals, organizations, and communities that you serve. And to do that, our team is made up of what we call the MI guys here, where we got our director and leader, Casey Jackson. And Tammy Calais. Hello. Who is our innovative leader that has brought us here together. And then myself, a trainer named John, just to help host this and keep it going. I like that. That's good. Like a doctor. Trainer named John. Trainer named John. Yes. Yes. Like, <laughs> I feel like there's a lot that could be ripped off of that. For I, now, I'll, I'll, put, a, I'll oh. put a cap. I'll put a... <laughs> For today, I believe it is, it said that we have other things to talk about, particularly uh, something that I know I have a lot of questions about, which is motivational interviewing and manipulation. And it relates to some other podcasts we've done, like motivation and influence or ethical influence. And we go deep into that on a, on a longer podcast. Um, we've talked a little bit uh, recently about that on a uh, podcast with using MI and law enforcement. We just started to kind of hint at it. Um, and then there's other things that we'll be talking about as well with MI and sales. And just where is that line with MI and manipulation and trying to get people, you know, some people call it tactical communication in the uh, maybe law enforcement side or, or different people and in sales it can be you know uh, a whole different ball of wax so i just want to start kind of this conversation around mi and manipulation and inherently isn't everything manipulation or how is it not manipulation to do mi so i'm just going to kind of open the the floodgates here and see where you both want to take it well before casey talks i just will say i remember at one point um, joining Casey for a training and there was a gentleman who said um, he was in pre-contemplation for the training and he was like I don't need think I need to join this training I, you know I've already done the training in motivational manipulation yes, and I was like what <laughs> yes it's always fun and exciting uh, to hear just how different people think about motivational reviewing or What's the intention? And there's so many ways to train it. I think that people have different exposures and different ways that they read it. Um, so I think that's why we've kind of honed in on the evidence-based practice side of it. You know, the first thing I'll say right out of the gate, that for me, what my North Star is on whether it's an MI-based conversation or if it leans into something else is whose goal is it ultimately about? Um, if it's about their goal, then it's not manipulation. If it's about my goal or someone else's goal for this person, and I'm trying to get them to understand that or get them to move in the direction I want them to, that's manipulation. I, I think one of the things that will probably clarify, and I know this gets clarified quite a bit, is I think we have so much stigma around the concept of what manipulation is, that it's always seen as a negative thing. Um, and there's one part of that construct that I am going to uphold, because I do think if I'm trying to get somebody to do what I want them to do, that is manipulative. Um, even though it's my own child, I'm not saying it's bad. Uh, it's just, you're trying to get somebody's behavior to align with what your values or your goals or your intention or the outcome that you want is. And that's not by definition, a sustained internal behavior change model. So 
So again, you know, the example I always hear people say is, well, I manipulate a pen to write, you know, um, I manipulate a steering wheel so I can drive. Um, so not all manipulation is bad. It's not, not patently bad. We just tend to think of people as being manipulative or are you manipulating? And my reset button always is in motivational interviewing or for behavior change, whose goal, whose intention, whose outcome are we really talking about here? Mm -hmm. Am I in some paternalistic way or professional way thinking I know what's best for them? Mm -hmm. And if I think I know what's best for them, then that slips away from motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. uh, motivational is very much for me, and I think this has really helped me evolve my motivational skills is really listening, not only to what we pay attention to in MI, which is the target behavior, but what are the values and goals of this individual? And is their brain really picking up that their behavior is aligned with that or not aligned with that? How I hold reflections up for them to see and to be able to self-assess, that's I'm manipulating my reflections to help the person see themselves better. So yes, I'm manipulating the way that I hold a mirror at the angle in which I hold it to try to find an angle in which this person can see themselves more clearly, or maybe something they didn't see about themselves. And if I hold a reflection at a certain angle, they have more insight or can create an aha moment. So there are skill sets that I'm using very mindfully, very skillfully. And the way I tend to define it to help me discern between the two is the difference between strategic and manipulation. For me, I'm very strategic in why I'm saying what I'm saying, what I choose to ask, what I choose to reflect is very strategic, mm -hmm. but I'm not trying to manipulate the person. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to manipulate their thoughts. I'm not trying to mold or shape their thoughts the way that I want to. That I know that people use skills for that, but that is not my uh, approach to motivational interviewing. It's mm -hmm. how do I use the skill set strategically so this person can kind of unveil or unmask things within them or barriers within them and solutions within themselves to become who they want to be or get to where they want to go. So it's kind of like you want to help help them get out of their own way. Absolutely. And, and, and to be able to not only get out of their own way, Tim, I think that's so important and get clear about where do they want to go? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, where do they, what, what is this really beyond all of it, beyond the situation, where do you ultimately want to be in your life? And motivation is, it, just, it truly is the epitome of a person-centered approach. And so much so, you know, one of the things that I've talked about before is my ideal is I want to get access to that brain that's laying there at night with their head on the pillow, looking at the ceiling, you know, and just kind of contemplating, where do I really want to be? Who, do, who am I? And where do I want to go? That's the brain I want access to. So I have no need to manipulate any of that. What I want to do is orchestrate, you know, their own internal motives, you know, to, to bring those to the forefront, to catalyze those, to be able to make forward movement towards a behavior change. Mm -hmm. I want to jump in there because that that's what was kind of underlying this whole conversation. And I'm curious your, your both of your thoughts on this is that uh, is a bias towards change, does that now mean that I'm manipulating the person towards change because the MI is a conversation about change, just, you know, the most basic definition uh, of it. And so what if that person doesn't want to change and then therefore is it manipulation to get them to change? And that's sort of an idea. 
And I and I just to help with this conversation too, I looked up kind of the definition here of, of manipulation, one being to handle or control typically in a skillful manner. So the fact that skill and strategy is being involved, like you're talking about, Casey, I think there's a, a connotation there with what the second definition is, which is control or influence a person or a situation cleverly, unfairly, or unscrupulously. Yeah. And I think it's this fairness and this, this fair strategy, how do those two things somehow coexist and if you have a bias for change at what point does that become manipulation if the person doesn't want to change just these sorts of thoughts and either of you feel free to jump in well i mean there's a couple of things that i think of I, I definitely the control piece of it that's why we're talking about how do we uncover it I, what you brought up john that i want to we'll dive into a little bit deeper is what if the person doesn't want to change so the first thing I think of when I, my brain goes through an MI process is I think, is it that they don't want to change or they don't know how to change? Uh, or that it's too intimidating, they don't feel like they have the skill set, the capacity, the intelligence, the resources. And so it's easier to say, I just don't want to change. Mm -hmm. As a behavioral health expert, I want to be able to assess that accurately. I'm not trying to convince them. I'm not trying to change their mind. I'm not trying to prove them wrong. I'm not trying to get them to where somebody else wants to go or where somebody thinks they need to go. What I need to do as a health expert, a behavioral health expert, is I want to assess it accurately. And to be able to assess that accurately, it means that I need to get past the resistance or the block or the tension or the discord. I need to circumvent that first to get access to what is really, really going on beyond the layers of defenses. So if someone does not want to change, if that's the presentation, it's I, I want to be able to assess that accurately. And with motivational interviewing and strategic reflective statements, I can assess that more accurately. I want to get past the resistance to see, does ambivalence exist? At first glance, people may say, I don't want to change. I don't want to be here. I don't want anything to be different. Mm -hmm. But when I hear things like, I don't want to be here, then I think they want to change. There's some change to be had there whether they're sitting in front of me because they were forced to, they're court ordered to, um, their parents are making them, their spouse is making them, that is a compliance model. It doesn't mean the individual doesn't want to change behaviors that may be associated with why they're there. They just don't want to be told or forced on what to do, which is a compliance model, which is what we talk about ad nauseum. So for me, what it is, is how do I use my professional skill set? How do I use the communication skill set to move past the defense, get past the defenses and see, does any modicum of ambivalence exist? And one of the things I say consistently is if there is 0 0.000000 ambivalence, zero ambivalence whatsoever, they are not defended. They're completely not on the defensive. They're, they're happy, they're fine, they're comfortable in their own body, they're comfortable with you and they just don't feel like change, there's nothing about this issue that they want to change, then motivational reviewing is not the indicated skill set because their behavior is in alignment with their values. If I'm trying to bring something up and want them to change, this is where it starts to dip into manipulation. If they're completely fine, they've looked at it 360 degree, 360 angle, um, all the way around the issue, and from every angle they look at it, they're perfectly fine with it and they're comfortable with where they're at. They don't feel like changing it. They don't have to see a need and don't have any desire to, then they're comfortable. 
then it may be somebody else's issue or need to make them change. That's where manipulation starts to come into it. If they say, you know, well, of course I'd like to, I just don't think I can, then ambivalence exists. So this is what we're assessing. And once there's ambivalence that exists then motivation is the most indicated for being able to help them resolve that ambivalence to help their behavior start to align with what their ultimate value or ultimate goal is. So well, my, go ahead, Tammy. I was gonna say, just like you said, there are people that due to trust, due to navigating their own thoughts and feelings, they haven't actually wrestled with the thoughts of change too. And so they might want to change, but they're just like, oh, I'm just not ready to talk about it yet. I'm not ready to talk about it with you specifically. You know, I haven't mentioned that to anyone, but for some reason, you know, they are starting to open up once we get strategic with how we respond, they do start to open up and share a little bit more of their inner thoughts about it. I, you know, what just struck me as you're talking about this, it just, and it just bounced off actually a conversation John and I had a few days ago. I don't think we give near enough credence to what defense mechanisms are. When you think of how complex the brain is, when it, when it starts to rationalize or justify or defend a behavior or thought, even if it's never shared with another person, our brains are so complex. The psychology behind it is so complex about why we defend behaviors or choices or thoughts is so complex. And so for me, there's this, it's almost an arrogance to think that somebody's just resistant or they don't want to change. Yeah it's the level of complexity to get past all of these incredibly complex defense mechanisms efficiently and effectively. If they're that defensive, there's something that's being protected. Mm -hmm. Which means there, to, to me, it would be, I'd be hard pressed for anybody that's that defensive to think that they're hundred percent comfortable inside their own skin with their own choices and their own behaviors. Yeah. And so if there's any internal conflict we find ways to resolve that internal conflict by justifying and rationalizing things or changing things. Mm -hmm. But as human beings, at least in our mainstream culture, we tend to do it by rationalizing and justifying or fixing. And if we're not gonna fix it, then we tend to justify and rationalize things or minimize. And those defense mechanisms are so incredibly complex. And why are we doing it? Because we wanna feel more comfortable with our behavior that we fundamentally don't feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And so to feel comfortable with it, we need to change the narrative in our own head around that. And then what do we do? We have to buy into that narrative. So we keep buying into that narrative so we can be okay with our own behavior. Yes. Which means we're not okay with our own behavior. Yes. And once that's uncovered, then we feel very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It means that ambivalence exists. Exactly. So it just, you, you can see that then people are feeling two ways about it. So the, the, the level of skill set that it takes to, to navigate through that whole process, all I can, can do is say I bow down to that level of skill set mastery, but that's not manipulation. I'm not trying to control them. I'm trying to better assess the situation. Yeah. And at a certain point, what we're getting at is it becomes a belief. And that's that could be religious or non-religious. And what I'm think is 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 critical here in this is that at a certain point. <clears throat> And this is something that I've experienced in, in my life, talking with different friends and from different back, backgrounds, that at a certain point, there's no ambivalence about the belief. The belief is the belief. 
it's um, I was talking with a friend here just the other day and we were talking about some stuff, Casey, that it's such a knowing within the person that there's 0, 0.0 ambivalence to change that particular thought or belief for that person. And then that's where I think it's that line of, okay, now I'm having different perspectives and opinions on the other side of things. That's, that would be manipulation if I started to try to do strategic reflections to, to get or see if this person has ambivalence when they've told me with defenses down, they don't have ambivalence about this belief. And I think that's an important line to be aware of as a friend, especially as a professional, as someone that is going, okay, do I go here? Do I not go here? Because in some of the, the um, trainings, two people have brought up either, uh, you know, different kinds of therapists, narrative therapists or other kinds around like, well, are we projecting when we make an inference? Because we haven't said that word, but that's part of what strategic reflections are, is to make an inference into that person's reality of what they're not saying. And so at what point are we projecting? And so we have conversations in the training around that. We could talk about that here. But the idea is that you're not trying to diagnose someone and, and you install thoughts like you were saying, Casey, so much as throw especially emotions as we talk about out there and and see if that you know hits if that lands if that resonates and so i think that's important that difference also of like what am i doing when i'm being strategic in my reflections am i trying to throw out that you know here's my diagnosis of you or here is what you must be going through and those are so different when you get strategic too how are you being strategic and i think that's important to bring up here when you start to talk about, well, what does it mean to be strategic without manipulation? And I just wanted to see, you know, if you would talk about that a little bit more too, how do you be strategic without putting all your stuff onto this person, especially if the person might be a little bit more agreeable because you're in a power position in that situation? How do you do that in a way that they don't just agree or take on all the things you're saying, but that you're checking your projections and still being strategic to, to see something inside of them and not try to change them because you're trying to change them. Yeah, the first thing I think of, John, when you say that is that I think this is the evolution or the advancement in people's understanding of what are we talking about with empathy and where does it align or not align with reflective statements. So regurgitating what somebody's saying or holding the mirror up in a way that you want them to see it specifically, there is a strategy behind that. But the fundamental skill set to master in motivational learning is empathy. Empathy is inside their worldview. So to project my thoughts or my words onto their head is not empathy. That's a stat, it's a strategy, it's a skill set, but that fundamentally by definition is not empathy. Empathy is I'm trying to put words to what's going on inside their experience. I'm not trying to install or instill words into their experience. I'm not trying to project onto their experience. That fundamentally is not motivational interviewing. Empathy is fundamentally motivational interviewing. It means I'm operating from that person's worldview. I'm trying to put words to the feelings, to the, the, the thoughts, the stressors, the, you know, the protection that's going on inside of them. I'm trying to put words to that. That's accurate empathy. And so when you think that that's my fundamental primary mode of operation it's hard for me to see where manipulation starts to play into it where i do see strategy play into it 
is when we start to convert from the stuckness into the changeness. And again, I think this is where there's that we're, we're, we're splitting hairs because people are really fascinated. People are fascinated with this is, well, isn't focusing on change talk manipulation? Well, no, because both sides exist within the individual. I'm just making a conscious decision of, am I paying attention to the stuckness or am I giving oxygen and providing light to the changeness within them? Um, that there is an, a mindfulness but they wouldn't be sitting in front of me if they just wanted stuckness. They'd be sitting at home and not talking to me if they just wanted stuckness. Um, so, or if they wanted some change because they didn't want somebody to keep forcing them to come in and talk. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to change from that. So it's where does, does our professional brain start to assess where is the potential for change within this individual, not from what everyone else's perspective, but from the individual perspective. So again, this is where, for me, it almost puts up this Teflon against the manipulation if you're operating from this perspective, the way that I think of it in motivational interviewing. If it's 100% if it's person-centered, it doesn't mean I don't have skill set and what I choose to hold a mirror up to. I'm not manipulating them. I am being strategic in what mirror I'm holding up and why. And it's to advance that individual's outcomes. So that is my ultimate goal is to advance this individual's outcomes. And then the, for me, this ties into other, you know, podcasts we've done in terms of self-determination theory, self-affirmation theory, Maslow's hierarchy. I genuinely, in my heart of hearts, I genuinely believe human beings want to be happy and healthy. I genuinely, genuinely believe that all human beings want to be happy and healthy. So I don't know what I would be manipulating. I just want to clear the path of this person to be happier and healthier but they need to do it under their own steam, which makes it person-centered. I can help orchestrate um, and provide or weave together or facilitate other resources that may help them on their journey or provide supports or services. Um, and again, if that's helping them climb to the top of their mountain, there's nothing manipulative about that. That seems like it's you know accommodating um, and helping them access. I'll jump in here because we've talked about this. Um... And it, it, quite a bit of trainings and I know it comes up often of like well yeah I want to do that Casey that sounds great but I have these outcomes I got to get and so how am I supposed to get these outcomes and you know now am I you know when I do these strategies I can feel my draw to the outcomes and it's taking me out of that but at the same time I still have these outcomes and I got to keep my job or I get performance indicators so is that biasing me? And so I guess the yeah, question that the, came up earlier as you were talking is, how would, I, how would I know if I'm slipping out of that purity like you're talking about? There's this beautiful purity you're talking about, but then there's a real world application for a lot of people where they might believe these things, but whether they're doing them or not really come into their internal awareness of themselves and what are they really intending to do? Why did they say what they just said? So I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to people's own internal realities and navigating how to be that pure with real world outcomes still on the table related to their job. Sure. I, I think from a organizational perspective, from an agency, from a clinic perspective, um, or from an individual perspective, I would be hard pressed to find any organization, clinic, agency, hospital, you know, mental health, any, any organization 
who doesn't at least have hung somewhere on their wall saying something they're trying to serve the people that come into them. Yeah. We're trying to be of service, whatever the service is. When I think why I got in the field, I want to be of service to people. I want them to be happier and healthier. If people are coming into us, they want to be happier or healthier. So fundamentally, if we just go to the very basics, there shouldn't be a whole lot of complication there conceptually. The person wants to feel better. I got training so I can help this person feel better. It's the what or the how we're going to do it. And the pressure to get outcomes is absolutely alive, kicking well, and thriving in our culture um, to get outcomes, get better outcomes. It, it's fascinating to me working with so many organizations, how that narrative has shifted so much to where I feel pressured to get outcomes. It, on one hand, I mean, think of how baffling this sounds, how baffling it sounds when you have a caseworker or a physician saying, I feel too much pressure to help all these people. Like you expect me to help too many people. Like, why do I have to see so many people and help them all? Well, that's what you signed up for. Don't you want to help people have better outcomes? Well, of course, but you don't understand. So yes, they do, but they're feeling conflicted because of the system issues. But if it's just a one-on-one -on -one situation, you've got somebody that's struggling with issues that wants help, then I'm skilled and trained in being able to provide, but I don't want to do that more. You put too much pressure on me to make that happen. It's the what's or the how's that people get caught in. And this is to me, it's that kind of that, the holy grail in motivational interviewing is this is a method of communication that helps navigate all those what's and how's more effectively. But I go into the field because I want people that are struggling with mental health issues or struggling with their children or struggling with addiction or struggling with life to not struggle so much and be happier and healthier. That's why I got in the field. So why would I be pushing against those outcomes? Because that's what the organization says they want. It's how it gets defined. And then it's how it gets projected down onto. So we get compliance pushed on us, which makes us push compliance on the people working with. Will you just take the medication? Will you just do this? Will you just try this? Just take your insulin. Just do this. Just do this. But the reams of data show that telling people what to do does not work. It just doesn't work. So what do we do? We stigmatize the population and say, well, they're just resistant. They're not willing to change. It's like, well, maybe we could just choose to communicate with them more effectively. You know what data says? Is if we communicate with them more effectively, people want to be happier and healthier. Mm -hmm. So why don't we learn to communicate in a way to help people become happier and healthier? Well, again, it kind of, to me, takes it back to the roadblocks of communication. Yes. There are things that we naturally do. Yes. And we do it unintentionally. Yes. And, and we do it with like, the best of intention, not just unintentionally, we do it with the best of intention. Yes. But it ends up being a roadblock to the communication. Yes. And even like, even when we're trying to help ourselves, you know, let's say we are trying to go through our own change process ourselves, there's things that we do not intentionally to sabotage ourselves, but we have a hard time sometimes getting through that. So, I mean, it's kind of a natural process that you know, these roadblocks happen, yeah, to the best of us. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I'll jump in too to say that there's a certain level of, of, of people that have certain traits that come more naturally than others in terms of skill and how much skill to work on. We know this in sports, we know this in helping professions, and there's something to be said about how self-aware are you of, of these dynamics you just talked about, Casey, which are really important, 
And I could be sitting here going, I believe all of that. I see all of that. And I do everything you're talking about, Casey. Um, and there's a certain level, I think, to your point that you just brought up, Tammy, of like, well, how much are we really seeking uh, as objective of a truth as we can find to what am I embodying? You know, it doesn't have to be our MICA tool. It could be other measures of empathy, for example. Uh, but there's something to be said about getting feedback, practice with feedback to how much am I skillfully embodying this versus just believing it. And yeah. I think there's something to be said about that when we're starting to think about, well, am I manipulating people? There is a power struggle I have when I'm serving youth and there's already developmental things going on there or whoever is listening to this to be like, well, I don't, I believe everything that's being said, but how do I seek feedback? And that seems to be just an important piece of this puzzle. If people are really trying to understand for themselves that they feel their intentions are positive, like you and Tammy were just saying, um, and there might be road traps still happening and there might be projections or whatever still happening um, because that person just isn't as natural of the, of a cognitive impact of saying certain types, they might feel it. Uh, they're a, a more natural um, emotional impact, but they're not as much a cognitive impact being able to describe it, right? So it sounds like you guys are getting at that there's something to be said about having positive intent, but that doesn't mean there's not manipulation. It's there's something about embodying these concepts and being clear of your intentions. And then that will be more likely to not manipulate, but even then, I guess I'm proposing feedback seems to be an important piece of the puzzle. I don't know what your experience is, Casey, but how many people, you know, that feel they're not being manipulative, but maybe are with unsolicited advice or other things like that. So I was just wondering if we could kind of talk about some of those roadblocks or something like that, that you see people maybe fall into with good intentions that really aren't trying to be manipulative, but that might be being manipulative. Thank you for listening. Uh, any other thoughts before we go? Great. This is the communication solution, and we truly hope that this uh, motivational interviewing changes your world. So. All right. With that, see you next time. Thanks. And don't forget to listen to part two of this podcast.